Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, The Chosen is a novel by Chaim Potok. It was later made into an award-winning movie, one of my favorite movies. I've seen it multiple times. It's the story about two young high school Jewish boys growing up in Brooklyn at the end of World War II. Uh, Danny and Reuben. Danny and Reuben meet on the baseball field. Uh, Danny is a Hasidic Jew, and so he shows up with his team of Hasidic Jews. They got the broad-brimmed hats and the dark coats, the black coats and the curly Q sideburns uh, dangling by their cheeks. And, and uh, Reuben, he's just a normal Jewish kid, all dressed, his team's all dressed as kids back then would have been dressed. And they sort of suppose that the Hasidic team can't really be good at baseball dressed like that. But boy, are they in, in for a surprise. Danny steps up to bat this Hasidic Jewish kid, and he hits a line drive right at Reuben, and it smashes his glasses and damages his eye, and he's rushed to the hospital. And so Danny goes to the hospital to say, I'm sorry to Reuben, and the boys become fast friends. And Reuben starts visiting at Danny's home. Danny's dad is a revered Hasidic rabbi, Reb Saunders. And Reuben especially likes to go on Saturday to celebrate Shabbat with the family. Uh, but he's a little put off by a behavior of Reb Saunders toward his son. Uh, this, this rabbi never speaks to Danny, never speaks to his son. And later on in the story, we learn the reason for this. The, the rabbi is concerned that Danny will grow up and be arrogant because he's extremely bright. He's a brilliant student. He's got a photographic memory. And, and the rabbi wants to make sure that his son knows how to feel the pain, the anguish, the struggles of other people. Now, now, at the end of the story, we learned that the rabbi realizes this was probably not the best strategy for teaching his son compassion for others because in, in the process, Danny has grown up wondering, does dad love me? Okay, well, what kind of a father turns a deaf ear to his own son? And that's the question we're going to be addressing today, only we're not going to be talking about human fathers. We're going to be talking about our heavenly father. What do you do when you're, you're going through a difficult time and it seems like God's given you the silent treatment? You know, what, what do you do when life is hitting the fan and it doesn't seem as if God cares or God even, that, that he's even aware of what it is you're going through? You know, we, we're, we're in the fourth week of a six-part series in the Psalms, Songs of Hope, we're calling this. So if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 77, smack dab the middle of your Bible. This is a psalm of lament. What, what does that mean, lament? Uh, one author who's written a book on Psalms of Lament defines it this way, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. So you're wrestling with this paradox, this seeming contradiction, all this junk's going on in my life, and yet God promises to be a caring and a loving God. Like, then why is he allowing this? And, and so Psalms of Lament cry out, what's going on, God? You know, are, are you listening to my cries? Are, are you giving me the silent treatment? What's happening here? Uh, 
Now, if, if you're under the impression that it's inappropriate or it's irreverent to talk about God in this way, you, you'll be surprised to learn that a full third of the Psalms, 150 Psalms, a third of them are Psalms of lament. And, and the psalmists aren't the only people in the Bible who dare to question God about his silence. The prophet, Old Testament prophet Habakkuk cries out in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen, or cry out to you, but you don't save? Remember Job, that long-suffering guy with the horrific problems, Job prays in despair, Job 31 verse 35, Oh, that I had someone to hear me, let the Almighty answer me. Even Jesus, hanging on the cross, cries out in despair. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I guess it's acceptable to lament. I guess it's acceptable to cry out to God, what's going on when we're going through a difficult time and we're not hearing from God? You may find yourself in the midst of a life crisis today. Maybe you've been looking for work for months and haven't been able to find a job. Maybe, maybe the doctor has recently told you that your cancer's back. Maybe you've discovered porn on your husband's laptop or drugs in your teenager's backpack. Maybe your fiance recently broke off the engagement and it's just weeks to go to the wedding. Maybe your parents have announced that they're going to divorce. Major crises cause us to wonder, where is God in all this? But you know, even minor crises can cause us to feel like God is not paying attention. You know, it could be something as simple as your, your, your friend has broken off the relationship because he's misunderstood something you said. Or your baby is not sleeping through the night. Or you're flunking algebra and you have no idea how to turn it around. God, hey, where are you? Hello. Psalm 77 teaches us how to lament the right way when God doesn't seem to be showing up. Three steps. And I would recommend, even if you're not a note taker, write these three words down because even if you're not in a crisis currently, there may be one just around the corner. So you want to remember these three words. Number one, pray. Pray. Now, if your Bible is open, to Psalm 77, you might notice at the top, you know, we're told who wrote this psalm before you get to verse 1. It says, for the director of music for Jeduthun of Asaph, a psalm. So the writer of this psalm is a dude named Asaph, not King David. We usually associate the psalms with, with David. And David wrote 73 out of the 150 psalms, almost, almost half. But Asaph was one of the worship directors that David appointed to oversee worship at the local worship center called the Tabernacle. And one of the things he did is he wrote music for the choir that sang. And there are 11 songs in the book of Psalms, Psalms 73 to 83, that were penned by Asaph to be sung by the choir for the worship services. And, and what's odd about this song we're about to look at is this is not a toe-tapping, hallelujah, raise your hand, the band's really got an upbeat uh, groove going on. In fact, imagine, I'm going to read the opening verses here, imagine that you walk into church some week at a Christ Community Church, and this is what the worship team is singing, okay? I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. 
When I was in distress, I sought the Lord at night. I stretched out untiring hands. I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Asaph is obviously writing a song for people who are going through difficult times and it seems like God has given them the silent treatment. You know, that God is not showing up and what should they do? Asaph says, step one, pray. And if you've stopped praying, start praying again. Okay, look, look at all the phrases in the opening verses that refer to prayer. Verse one, I cried out, says that twice. Verse two, I sought the Lord. I stretched out untiring hands. Verse three, I groaned, I meditated. You know, whether it's big problems or little problems, when life hits the fan, we've gotta keep talking to God. We gotta keep praying. Mark Rogop has written just a phenomenal book on the Lament Psalms called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. In fact, you guys know I read tons of books every year. This has to be one of the top three books I've read in the last year. And his, his grief journey began a number of years ago when his wife gave birth to a stillborn daughter they named Sylvia. And he held this very beautiful nine pound but lifeless girl in his arms and the grief journey began. And it was later compounded by the fact that his wife then had multiple miscarriages, had a false positive pregnancy that brought their spirits up and then crashed. And so he writes in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he, he warns us of something to avoid. He says, giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. God doesn't care. He doesn't hear. Nothing's going to change. Will people who believe this stop praying? They give up. Mar says, don't do that. You know, it, it, don't, don't start praying when the crisis hits and then when God doesn't seem to show up, you, you sort of throw in the towel after a while and you stop talking. No, don't stop talking to God. This guy in Psalm 77 didn't stop praying. He didn't, didn't give up. In fact, he seemed to ratchet up the intensity of his appeal to God. He didn't just pray, he cried out. You see that a couple of times in, in verse one. I cried out, I cried out. In, in, in my book, Prayer Coach, I teach my readers how to pray with passion. You know, I, I point out that this is a practice we see emulated throughout the, the pages of scripture. You, you've got in the Old Testament, you've got Jacob wrestling with God in prayer an entire night. That's the verb that's used. He wrestled with God in prayer. Okay, you got Hannah who's so distraught she goes to the temple to pray and she's praying with, with such intensity that Eli the priest thinks she's drunk. You, you got Jesus the night he was betrayed praying in the garden of Gethsemane with so much passion that he's sweating great drops of blood. You've got the church, the persecuted church in yeah, the first century, the book of Acts tells us they gathered for prayer and they prayed with such intensity that when they were done, the place where they were meeting was shaking. The building shook. How should we respond to the trials and hardships 
in our lives when it seems as if God is not listening, we need to, need to pray, and we need to pray with passion. It seems as if God sometimes waits to intervene on our behalf until he hears an earnestness in the way we pray. You know, half-hearted, casually voiced, brief snippets of prayer don't reach higher than the ceiling. If we are serious about getting God's attention, we gotta cry out like the psalmist did. So let me give you a couple of suggestions for adding passion to your prayers, especially when you're praying a prayer of lament. Two suggestions. First, change your posture. Okay, when you, you pray, None of this sitting back in your recliner, legs crossed, sipping a cup of coffee. You know, I, I tell community groups this too. You know, if you're sitting down while you pray, at least sit on the edge of your seat. You know, try changing your posture. Try, try dropping to your knees and praying occasionally on your, your knees. Uh, try pacing. Try walking. You know, there's something about walking that adds energy to your prayer, whether you're pacing your basement or you're walking around the block or you're taking a path along the river and you're, you're praying. You know, lift up your hands. Try this while, while you pray. Verse 2 says, I stretched out untiring hands. Do that. Try laying face down, prostrate on the ground. You say, really? Does that work? Well, if you've been reading the Bible Savvy Reading Schedule, Book of Numbers. This last week, we ran into Moses doing this frequently, right? Every time those knuckle-headed Israelites got on his nerves, started rebelling against his leadership, what's the repeating phrase you came across in Numbers? Moses fell face down before the Lord. You know, one Christian leader I read on prayers said he calls this the eat, eat rug posture. Has <laughs> he ever eaten rug? You've know, been so worked up, so desperate to see God intervene in your life in some situation that you literally got face down on the floor and you cried out to God. So change your posture. Second suggestion, raise your voice. Raise your, when the psalmist says he cried out to God, which, by the way, is a very common expression in psalms. Have you ever cried out to God? I mean, some volume. It means he added volume to his prayers. Uh, Sue and I traveled down to Tennessee a couple of weeks ago uh, we went to the Smoky Mountains to go hiking for several days. So we got up every morning, four days straight, and we hiked all day, came home exhausted at the end of the day, but it, it was beautiful. And one of the things we did while we hiked on occasion is we, we prayed. And we were covering the concerns of family members and Christ Community Church and friends of ours going through difficult straits. And keeping in mind... You know, my preparation for this sermon about the importance of crying out to the Lord, and because I was in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Smoky Mountains, I thought it was safe to just do some shouting of my prayers. In fact, I told Sue, I hope you don't mind, I'm just going to shout, and I prayed out loud like that. You ought to try it sometime. It's very cathartic. <laughs> now, just, just a word of warning here. Yeah, make sure nobody you know is listening in, okay? That can kind of goon you out a little bit. Uh, we, we, we came to a path one day. We were looking for this remote path, had to travel down a gravel road two miles just to get to the, uh, you know, the, the path head. And as we're getting out of our car and we're stepping into the woods, some guys are coming out of the woods. They've just been hiking this, this path. And as we pass them, uh, one of the guys looks up and he goes, Jim Nicodem? I looked up and it was, Caesar? 
guy who worked on my staff years ago. He lives on the West Coast now. Ran into him in the middle of nowhere. So if you're going to pray in the woods, just make sure nobody's listening. Just a thought. How do we respond to the trials and hardships in our lives when it seems as if God is not listening? We lament. And how do we lament? Step one, pray. And if you say, tried that, it did no good, what's next? The answer is pray. <laughs> pray some more. Keep on praying. Step two. And this is going to surprise you. Step two is complain. <laughs> Now, I know that complain is not a positive word, and I know that the Bible tells us to give thanks in all circumstances, which doesn't sound, it sounds like the opposite of complain, giving thanks, but there's a lot of complaining in these psalms of lament. And let me remind you, a third of the psalms are psalms of lament. So let's take a look at how Asaph complains, uh, dropping down to verse five where we left off. He says, I thought about the former days the years of long ago, I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Six-pointed, poignant, Rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question that when you ask it, you don't expect an answer. And in this case, he's not looking for answers. He's just complaining. Okay, that's the, the purpose of, uh, uh, of the question. It's like, God, uh, what's going on? You're not going to love me anymore? You're not going to show up in the midst of my problem? Hello? Uh, years ago, uh, when, uh, when Sue and I started having baby sue was doing needlework and uh, every child every time she got pregnant she would do uh, she would do a new sampler one of those needle point samplers and so we became acquainted with groups uh, around the country called uh, stitch and gripe groups <clears throat> yeah it's stitch the literal name is stitch and a word that rhymes with stitch but sue said i couldn't say it in my sermon so uh and it turns out there's like 1,500 of these groups in 239 cities around the world. I Googled it, so it's true, all right? And I, th I think to myself, all these ladies getting together to do some form of needlework and, and then gossip and complain. That's what's on the agenda, okay? Now, the psalmist would never have joined a group like that. Because complaining wasn't an end in itself. It wasn't something he did as a recreational activity. You know, hang out with friends and complain. You know, stitch and gripe. No, no. In, 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 in fact, my, my men's group that meets every uh, Thursday morning at 645, we do our share of complaining, but we would never be a stitch and gripe group. I mean, so, sometimes our complaining is very intentional. I use an icebreaker called the high-low question. And we use this oh, probably at least every second or third week. I say, oh, what's a high from your life this past week? What's a, what's a low? We also call it the happy crappy question. <laughs> now, what's going on in your... You say, well, why would you hit on the lows? What's the point? Well, the point is once we've talked about the pain we're experiencing, the discomfort in our lives, what do you think we do? We pray. We take it to God. 
So you see, that's the end goal here. It's to crystallize in your mind what it is you're, you're working through, and then you bring it and you leave it before God. In uh, Mark Vrogop's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he talks about the cathartic benefits of complaining. As, as long as, he says, as long as you don't get stuck at this, at this stage. He tells the story of a friend who shared with him his struggle with same-sex attraction. I want to read you the story. Uh, it's a bit of a lengthy excerpt, but he says it's so much better than I could recap it. So he says, uh, my friend was discouraged with the Christian counseling he had received. From his perspective, well-meaning counselors had worked with him to change only his behavior, and that was always a temporary fix. But before long, he would fall back into the same pattern of sinful behavior, and he felt like God had forgotten him. He struggled with why God allowed some very painful circumstances in his childhood to occur. He battled anger with his parents. He felt like God was always distant. His struggle was not only with same-sex attraction, but also with God. I remember the look in his eyes when I told him, well, it sounds like the lament psalms were written just for you. I encouraged him to tell God exactly how he was feeling. I challenged him to lay out his pain, his questions, his struggles before the Lord. I tried to help him see that not only could God handle his messy thoughts, he already knew them. The struggling man's questions were not a surprise to God. Slowly, the darkness began to lift in this brother's life. The struggle with same-sex attraction, it didn't vanish, but his sense of divine abandonment did. As he poured out his soul in lament, it opened his heart for God to apply healing grace in his life. The painful questions that once created a barrier between him and God now became the vehicle to draw him closer to the one who could change his heart. God began a work of renewal in his life. He started to change, and complaint, complaint was part of that journey. After telling his story, Mark goes on to recommend the practice of actually sitting down and writing out a list of our complaints and then talking to God about them. He says that pain has a tendency to make us myopic. We become so fixated on our problems that nothing else matters. We become preoccupied with the weight of our sorrow, the unfairness of life, the fear that we're never gonna be happy again. Mark says if this goes unchecked, it creates a self absorbed emotional downward spiral but when we write out our complaints and we talk to the lord about them they lose their hold on us mark says he even occasionally finds himself laughing out loud at how silly some of his complaints are once he sees them in actual writing so complaining the right way to god can help us see ourselves in our situation with greater clarity you get it good third step rehearse okay back to psalm 77 pick it up at verse 10 then i thought to this i will appeal the years when the most high stretched out his right hand i will remember i will remember the deeds of the lord yes i will remember your miracles of long ago i will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds the key word in this paragraph this is why you bring your bible so you could mark it up as we go circled the word remember twice in verse 11. this this verb can also be translated to make mention of so write that in the margin of your bible to make mention of and the reason i bring it up 
is because the, the word remember is not just a mental activity, calling things to mind. It's calling things to mind and then speaking them, making mention of them, which is why I've chosen to use the word rehearse. Things that you remember and you rehearse out loud. Like what? Well, the first of three things is found in verses 11 and 12. The psalmist mentions the deeds of the Lord. His miracles in times past, his works, and a second mention of his mighty deeds. So the psalmist is rehearsing what God has done, both in the world at large and in his own life. God's mighty deeds. I, I want you to see that the psalmist is turning a corner here. Okay, the first part of the psalm is all about how bad things are in his life and how God doesn't seem to be listening to him. And then he gets into the middle of, uh, of the psalm and he takes the spotlight off himself and his woes and he turns the spotlight on God and God's mighty deeds. An interesting pattern, Bible scholars point out, uh, can be seen in this psalm. For the, the first six verses, there are 18 first-person pronouns used, I or me or my, and only six references to God. Three times as many references to himself. And then in the last eight verses of the psalm, there's not a single singular personal pronoun and 21 references to God. See, this dude is turning a corner in his lament. He is deliberately shifting the focus from himself to God as he starts by rehearsing God's mighty deeds. The staff at Christ Community Church, we get together a couple times a week to pray. We pray for about an hour at a shot, even during COVID. You know, we just have a Zoom call. It takes me three screens worth to see all of the staff faces and about every third or fourth time we gather, I'll say, hey, before we start throwing out requests, prayer requests for our ministries, how about some God sightings? That's what we call it, God sight. Where have you seen God show up in your life or in your area of ministry in the last week or two? You know, call them out, okay? Give us an example, tell us a story, and we'll go on for 30 minutes, one staff member after another saying, oh, just the most incredible answer to prayer, or I've been watching God transform the life of this person in my ministry, or something spectacular happened this last week. You know, we had a bazillion kids at Camp Commotion, and we'll go on and on. God sightings, God's mighty deeds. I'd recommend this exercise to you in your personal life, periodically, once a week at least, in, in, in your prayer or even journaling. Say, where have I seen God show up? Where's God showing up in my life? What mighty deeds am I seeing? Do it around your, 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 your dinner table with your family. You know, do it in your community group, periodically. What are some God sightings? How's God showing up in our lives? And then second, after he cites God's mighty deeds, you know, the psalmist focuses on God's attributes. That's what he rehearses. Go back to Psalm 77, pick it up where we left off, verse 13. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God. You're the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. You see all the attributes of God, his character traits in these verses. You could circle them. He's holy. Circle holy in verse 13, which means he's perfect. He doesn't mess up. 
Okay, when bad things happen in our lives, it's not because God dropped the ball that he, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. No, he's holy, he's perfect. And he's powerful. You know, which, which means our, our problems are not too big for God. And there's several words in these verses that talk about his power. He's great, power, mighty, mighty arm. You see those attributes? God's not overwhelmed by your situation. <laughs> remember, the, remember the time in the New Testament when Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, fishermen, and they're out on the Sea of Galilee and the storm hits and it's a violent storm and they're scared out of their minds and Jesus stands up and says a word and the waves and the wind grow quiet and they're amazed by his power. We've got to rehearse God's power. Who is it we're talking to? So he's holy, he's powerful, he's compassionate. I picked that up from the first line of verse 15. It says, with your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. God redeems his people. This calls to mind the Old Testament story of God delivering his people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Okay, Exodus chapter two, verse 25 says, they cried out to God and God heard their cries and he was concerned for them. God is concerned for you as you go through difficult times. You need to rehearse his compassion. So all these attributes, and by the way, I periodically remind you of this. We have created a list of 250 attributes and titles and names by which God goes in the Bible, and we've made it accessible to you. It's on our mobile app. So anytime you want it, just you know, go to your phone and scroll down to attributes of God and throw a few of those into your prayer life or into your community group meeting. Okay, we, we rehearse God's mighty deeds. We rehearse God's attributes. Third, we rehearse God's salvation. God's salvation. Okay, I've alluded to the fact that the psalmist is making reference to God's deliverance from Egypt, from bondage in Egypt. But do you remember what happened next? So the people are free and they go off toward the promised land and they get to the Red Sea and Pharaoh changes his mind. He wants them back. There is his cheap labor. So he sends his army to retrieve them and now they've got nowhere to go because the Red Sea is in front of them and Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them. And so they cry out to God and God divides the waters of the sea so they can pass on dry ground and then when Pharaoh's army tries to follow them, God wipes them out by causing the waves to fold over the top of them and his people are saved. God's salvation. Listen to how the psalmist describes it. Psalms are full of metaphorical, colorful language. Picking it up at verse 16, the waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So if you're an Old Testament believer going through a tough time, you sit down and you read Psalm 77 and you're inspired by this recollection, this story of God's salvation, deliverance from Egypt, from Pharaoh and his army. But if you're a New Testament follower of Jesus as we are, 
You read Psalm 77 when you're going through a difficult time and you're reminded of a much bigger story, more amazing story of God's salvation. You, you called to mind how God sent his son, Jesus, when we were lost and hopeless. We had separated ourselves from a holy God. We'd gone our way instead of his way. And by disconnecting from God, the giver of life, the penalty we faced was death, spiritual death on the inside, a broken relationship with God, physical death at the end of this life, eternal death in the world to come. But God sent his son on a rescue mission. Jesus came and he took the death that we deserve when he died upon the cross. And he didn't stay dead, he was raised from the dead. He's exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. He's king of the universe and he offers forgiveness and new life to everyone who will put their trust in him, everyone who will surrender to him. Have you ever surrendered to Christ? You know, if you never have, or you're, oh, I'm not sure if I have, well then you probably haven't. Today is the day. Even in a few moments as we head into communion, you can bow your head and you could say, okay, I'm ready. I need you to be the Savior and the King of my life. And if you have made that decision, you need to remind yourself, if you've surrendered to Jesus as Savior and King, you need to rehearse again and again his salvation. His salvation. Especially when you're facing tough times. And you say, well, you know, what's the purpose of that? I mean, so what difference does it make that six months ago or three years ago or two decades ago, I surrendered my life to Jesus and I was forgiven and given new life? How does that apply to the current difficult straits I find myself in? You know, the Apostle Paul would respond to that question, I think, with Romans 8, verse 32, where he says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up, gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You hear what Paul's saying? If God has already paid the ultimate price to deliver you from spiritual, physical, eternal death, don't you think that he cares about meeting your needs in your current situation? Of course he does. Every once in a while, I find myself singing the words of a pop Christian song from years ago. Most of you probably don't remember this. The lyrics go, He didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't teach us to swim to let us drown. He didn't build his home in us to move away. He didn't lift us up to let us down. He didn't lift us up to let us down. So I need to rehearse God's salvation. He didn't save me through the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus to abandon me in the midst of my trials? No. I need to rehearse God's mighty acts, God's sightings. I need to rehearse God's attributes that he's holy and powerful and compassionate and 250 attributes that I got a list of. I need to rehearse God's salvation. And that's what we're about to do in communion. So I invite you right now, would you bow your heads, your hearts with me? Let's pray together. Let me walk you through the steps just so they will be riveted in your mind. 
How do you lament when you're going through difficult times and you're wondering, does God hear my cries? Does God care? Step one, pray. If you've given up on praying, just say to God right now, God, I'm back and I want to talk. Step two, complain. Maybe even before the day's out, you sit down and you make a list and you say, okay, God, what about this? What about this? And allow him to draw your heart to himself. Take the complaint to the one who can do something about it. Quit griping to everybody under the sun and talk to God. Third, rehearse. You know, begin to look for God sightings in your life. Start putting that attributes of God list to, to work. You know, remind yourself as you hold the bread and the cup in your hand in just a moment, the great lengths to which God has gone to redeem you at the cost of his son's life. Do you really think he doesn't care about you? Oh, Lord God, thank you for giving us Jesus. Enrich our worship, our celebration of communion now, we pray in your name. Amen.